Good morning and welcome to another episode of The Crownsman Show. This is episode 43 and today we are joined by Robert Skrzynski. He is the Vice President and Business Development Manager and partner of MGH Railcar. He will be discussing the changes in the railcar industry, including the shift in who actually owns the railcars and how storage facilities are ever increasing in demand, along with some very good tips for being a new company in a massive industry. But before we get started, um, I'd like to go through our very special sponsors. Today we are sponsored by Lampson International. Lampson International is a third generation family owned and operated heavy lift and heavy haul construction company with branch offices located throughout North America, Canada and Australia. Lampson International offers conventional crane rental, heavy transportation, uh, project engineering and customized rigging, steel and timber mat rental, as well as marine and manufacturing services. Uh, Lampson International was founded in 1946 by Neil and Billy Jane Lampson. The company is in their 73rd year of doing business. And you can visit them at lampsoncrane.com or email info at lampsoncrane.com. We are also sponsored by Whipware. Whipware's uh, a photo analysis, sorry, we're also sponsored by Whipware. Whipware's photo analysis software systems help industries from mining, quarries, aggregate, forestry, agriculture, coal, and explosive remove the need to use manual sieving uh, techniques. Their technologies have saved clients millions in energy costs, maintenance costs, process optimization, quality control, lost time injuries, equipment downtime, and quantitative decisions. And you can find out more at whipware.com. Today, our feature sponsor is PowerZone Equipment, and you can take a look at a little clip about them right now. The centrifugal pumps became a more of a thing for us. And, and, and our real specialty nowadays is, is high pressure, multi-stage centrifugal pumps. And we still do the recips, but the, the centrifugal pumps are, the mathematics and the physics are a little more exotic. Mm -hmm. um, little more engineering involved so so you can you can leverage your your expertise to see the power zone inventory and engineering services for fluid handling go to powerzone.com thank you for supporting the show please remember to subscribe at the end of every episode i will also be letting you know on other ways how of of ways sorry of other ways you can support the groundsman show um now let's get on with episode 43 welcome to the voice of industry hmm. Where are you? Uh, where are you joining us today from today, Robert? I'm currently in my home office in Warman, Saskatchewan, which is uh, just outside of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Is that uh, is that a is that a big town? Uh, there's about uh, I think like twelve thousand people living here. Um, it's considered a city, <laughs> believe it or not. But uh, yeah, we don't we don't in have climate, that, That's considered too many people. <laughs> well, you know, there hasn't really been that much change, right? So um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so MGH Railcar, uh, I you know it's right on your website, one stop for railcar solutions. Um, so let's just jump it right into it. What in a nutshell, and we're going to get into lots of stuff about the industry, you know how the company was formed and developing partnerships and highlighting some projects. But can you just give us a nutshell of what the what the company is all about? Yeah, so MGH Railcar was started in 2017 with uh, myself and my business partner, just kind of a, out of a necessity. Uh, we'd begun working on some projects um, and uh, we just had to come together and form a single company. Um, so our objective is to offer 
like solutions to rail car users. Uh, normally those are banks, uh, shipping companies. Uh, we offer uh, a number of services. Uh, our company is divided into basically two baskets. Uh, one side is the rail car storage, uh, which I look after. And the other side of the business is our mobile services. Uh, and that, that's looked after by uh, Mark Herbert at our company. Okay, Mark, Mark Herbert, is he the, uh, the other owner? Correct, he's, he's my business partner. Okay, so you know, a company, so you, how, how long has it been around? Uh, it, it hasn't been too long since no, MGH so yeah, has been in operation. This, this April is our fourth year of business. So we just began our fourth year, um, second day in. So yeah, we we've, we've, haven't been allowed, uh, around for long, um, but it, uh, we've grown really quickly. Um, we have uh, a number of customers, uh, over 50 customers that trust us with their rail car services uh, needs. So um, we, we've done quite a bit in a short period of time. Had you been in the industry before before this, or, yeah. or was this a, a new venture for you? It, it was a new venture, uh, first venture on my own, um, so to speak. Uh, prior to this, I, I worked for a company that cleaned up train derailments uh, in Western Canada. So I, I did train derailments from Thunder Bay, Ontario, all the way to uh, BC. Um, so that, that's how I got my exposure to the industry. I kind of went around everywhere. I saw all the track um, in, in Western Canada. I mean, there aren't many rail towns that I haven't been to. So that was my exposure into the industry. Uh, and then, you know, I started noticing some things and uh, it eventually led to, um, you know, wanting to start a business on my own um, and see what we can do ourselves uh, rather than just work for a company. I wanted to get into that part, um, actually, is um, because you've, you know, you said you've traveled around, you saw, you essentially saw a need. And I want to talk a little bit about the industry itself. Um, you know, you and I have talked, and we'll just walk through them. Uh, we talked off, offline um, a little bit about, you know, there's more privatization in rail cars. Um, you know, there's an increase in rail st car storage. Can we just talk about the industry as a whole? Um, and then, then we'll move into how you actually got, you enter into an industry like this. But, but first, the privatization of the rail car, which was, a new, which was a new thing for me to even learn about. Yeah, so just to give you a little bit of a background, like when the railroad companies first started, they did everything, right? So they did the car repair, they did the track maintenance. I'm not sure if they were building cars. They might have gotten other people to build cars. Um, but for the most part, it was a self-sufficient system. So, so over the years, over the decades, um, slowly private industries have uh, have entered the rail industry. Uh, and now you're seeing um, in terms of rail car ownership, uh, it's like 70% of the rail cars out there are owned by um, the rail car users, either holding companies of banks, um, leasing companies or rail car shippers. So the, the onus has, has drifted away from uh, class ones, the main railroads uh, over to private industry. And is that has that shift already happened, or is that still a continuing shift? That, that's, that's, that's been happening. happening. That's been happening for um, decades. I mean, I, I think I, I really started to notice it about ten years ago. Um, mm -hmm. I was looking at the the rail cars, you know, as they passed, and I started noticing. Uh, if you look at a rail car number, um, if it has an X in it, it's a private car. And I started noticing all the cars were private cars. A uh, large percentage of the cars were private cars. Every oil train is private cars. Um, you know, the grain shippers are getting into private cars. The potash companies are getting into private cars. Um, the railroads, um, basically, they have some cars in their pool and they do a lot of intermodal service. But outside of that, the, the, the big trend has been going to private ownership. So, and with that, of mm. course, um, you know, you, you now have to maintain those cars, right? So um, right. CN and CP no longer have as much 
um, repairs to do. Um, and that's that's falling to third party co uh, companies like ourselves. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I guess it goes without saying if they're not if they don't own them, they're not obviously going to do the maintenance maintenance on them. By the way, we, you and I, we, we've spoken a couple times, but don't know each other that well. By you saying that there's an X tells you if they're private, private. Now I'm going to be watching every rail car. Yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> That's tell how my me that, brain yeah. works. So you yeah. you've ruined trains for me now. <laughs> I've ruined trains for a lot of people. A lot of people tell me they get stuck at trains after they see me. So I'm sorry about that. Um, I'll be, but I'll but I don't think you're. You probably yeah. don't have much of a commute anyway, so it's not a big deal to get stuck at a train. Yeah, no, I, I I did find that really interesting though that there there has been that shift, um, and it's these little things, these little nuggets you find out doing the show that I, I always find sort of fascinating. Um, and as that does that correlate with you've also mentioned there's an increase in rail car storage, is that is that correlated with uh, the privatization yeah, or is that a in, separate in a sense, thing in the yeah. industry? So I mean now now you have to get your own storage. Uh, you can't just rely on the railroads. At the at back in the day you'd ask for cars. I want twenty cars. The railroad would deliver you 20 cars but when you own those 20 cars and you don't need those 20 cars anymore it's up to you to mm -hmm. find out what you're going to do with it um, now rail car storage so it's been growing you know, because of that um, 24 percent of the cars were in storage you know as of uh january february of this year um, and then recently with uh with covid and uh, as well as the, the oil crash and canadian oil is trading at less than ten dollars a barrel um you know it, it doesn't pay really to move cars around uh, when your freight is more than your product. So those yeah. cars are all going into storage. So you had all your oil tankers going to storage, all your fracking, um, hopper cars going to storage. Uh, and then, you know, everyone else who might have needed storage regularly, regularly because of their business cycle, they're, they're having problems finding storage right now. So the, the market for storage has just turned on its head in the last literally two, three weeks. Oh, wow. oh that recently. I, you know, I'm, I'm and uh, so as we get, actually, I'm going to ask one question about those built rail car storage. Now, a lot of those storage facilities, would those also be, would those also be private facilities? So you're creating partnerships with them as you're dealing with your customers? Like how, how would that so just, operate? Yeah, just to explain our storage industry. So our storage business, um, I have a really good handle on the storage industry. Uh, we have a lot of partners um, with short line railroads, industrial railroads in uh, Western Canada. And we market, <clears throat> excuse me, we market their excess, excess space. Um, so these uh, facilities, some of them are industrial where they've been built. Uh, and, uh, but in a lot of cases, they're branch lines that the class one railroads at one point sold to say the local community for farming and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, they, they bought these railroads um, to move grain uh, and now they're finding that they can, they can drive revenue by having car storage there. They just don't have the contacts, um, you know, in the potash industry, the egg industry, uh, the energy industry to be able to get the cars there. So that's kind of where we step in and we, we help them find um, cars for their available storage space. Was that something you did right? For, was that part of your business model right from the beginning? No, or was that no, a... not at all. Not at all. It kind of fell into it. A customer was looking for storage, um, mm. you know, and uh, it, it worked out. And then we thought to ourselves, well, you know, are they the only one? Uh, they can't be the only customer that's looking for storage. So, you know, over the last couple of years, um, I was tasked to grow that side of the business. Um, and, we, and we've been able to now. So our, our rail car storage, we've got a number of customers that rely on us. Um, we, uh, some of the added be benefits are that we're working with multiple facilities. So 
you know, rather than getting, you know, paperwork from 10 different storage locations, it's a big mess and you got to audit them. We're giving you standardized reports for every single facility. Uh, it's easy to go through. Um, and then we're, we're auditing everything to make sure that the charges are correct. So we're also adding value that way. How do you, um, how do you get into, to an industry like this? I mean, it's, I, I'm sure there's, it's, it's an old industry now. Um, and, and it's, it's probably fairly tight knit. I would, I would guess like everything else. Um, but I, we, you know, we have a section, we kind of do this show in chapters to sort of cover these, these different sections of both your company and the industry. And, and we talked about doing a section on entering an industry and, um, you know, not just in yours, but in any industry, there's a challenge when you start a company. I mean, a four-year-old company trying to deal with a hundred-year-old company. I mean, there's, there's obviously going to be a difference. So how do you end, you know, these Fortune 500 companies, how when you start out, do you, do you enter a market like that? You have to be patient and you have to be willing to do the right things and, and build trust that way. Um, what we did, um, our marketing approach was uh, try to just keep everything digital, uh, email marketing, you know, LinkedIn marketing. Uh, we were able to build a connection base from that. You know, prior to that, we didn't know anyone. Uh, and then the other big thing that we noticed was our, our early customers were all Americans. Um, we didn't have any trust locally. Um, you know, the Saskatchewan based companies weren't buying from us. The Alberta based companies weren't, weren't using us for their services. It was the company out of Chicago or Texas. Um, so, you know, as we started to build some of those customers, um, and, and, you know, kind of we were around for a little bit, we, we built more trust with the local guys. So, you know, we're only now starting to facilitate uh, conversations with some of the local. Um, big companies. Um, so uh, that's why I'm excited about our company and the growth that we're going to have is because we've, we've been able to do it and we really haven't tapped into the, our full potential yet. Right. So you, you went, you went sort of from outside sources and then you, and now, but of course, I'm sure that has a go, going to equip you to, to deal with your local customers now that you've had a chance to deal with those sort of yeah. And you know what? We weren't always ready. Um, you know, uh, as a as a salesperson, you know, sometimes you want to put out a product and you're not always ready. Right. So it allowed us to have some time um, and, and, and get to a point where, um, you know, some we're, we're able to offer a lot better services now than we were a few years ago. And I think we're going to be able to continue that. And I think our, our local customers are going to find a lot of value in that. You know, going back to storage, which is where you uh, which is where the division you run of the company, when you're those part those partnerships those those storage facilities which i or would those be uh primarily local or those spread those out across yeah. even into the we, us we, as we've, well we've started in uh, western canada so we're working with providers in manitoba saskatchewan alberta uh, bc uh, we haven't really gone after the us market it's uh, it's not on our agenda as of yet uh, we're trying to focus in on um, on our territory here um, build a power base if you will and then we can grow from there does, you know, and, and how do you, oh, sorry, sorry. go ahead, Gary. <laughs> no, I was going to mention, I find it kind of interesting that uh, a lot of the times uh, for a business, it seems to easier to do business outside of our local area. Um, and I don't know, is that, do you think that it's because we're more cautious or like locally it, it's, it's, we're yeah. afraid Maybe. I think locally, you know that they haven't been around long, right? But you go, mm. um, you, you set up your web presence and, and uh, you know, a company out of Texas look you up and you, you meet all their needs. You look professional. Um, they trust you, right? Uh, but, but as 
you know, for Saskatchewan-based and Alberta-based customers, it, it took a little bit longer. We we had a like we had a couple companies that supported us from day one, and that we were right. lucky with. Um, so it, you know, it's not cut and dry, but for the most part, most of our early customers were American, and then we we've now drifted over where most of our customers are from Western Canada and based in Western Canada. Wow. It is, yeah. And to your point, Gaudi, it's uh, it does, yeah. That's that, I think that's exactly right, Robert. You. Um, when you start out, it does seem, I mean, I remember we, we were traveling all over the U.S. And, um, you know, when we initially started, uh, we were at a different business model back then. But um, local was because, yeah, people know you. I mean, they know you on a first name basis. So they know, they sort of know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you've got something that you're trying to deal with, you've got to get them to look past that so sometimes when you get those outside clients that sort of prove that you can do it then it's easier to sell yeah, to you'll the, get that local support when you have momentum is when yeah. you'll get it you're not going to get it at the beginning um you need yeah. that outside yeah. validation and other people need that validation as well before they trust you yeah. a lot of people aren't going to trust you until someone else has trusted you right yeah yeah, yeah. um I want to dig into some of the other services a little bit too. The the rail the rail car uh, service and repair. What is that? What does that entail? Um, like sort of the nuts and bolts of it. What 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 is the operation? Um, and I know you're a little bit different because you're actually doing mobile. Uh, you're not bringing them to a facility. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So our our strategy is uh, no fixed facilities. Uh, we're completely mobile. Uh, we just operate. Uh, they call uh, mobile repair units or MRUs. They're just equipped trucks with uh, carmen inside of it. They go and they they work on rail cars wherever they are. Um, uh, the advantage that we we found with that was, um, you know, if you want to send your rail car to a repair facility, um, it's probably going to cost you thousands of dollars per unit. So if you're sending you know 100 cars into a rail car facility for repairs, mm-hmm. you're going to spend thousands of dollars each car. Uh, you're going to lose your cars for three months you know 60 to 90 days um is is pretty average um so you know a lot of people are still paying for their lease payments when when the cars are in shop and that sort of thing so our our advantage is we go right to the cars uh, right at your site or we can give you some sites and storage that we can repair the cars at and and you can avoid uh, you can get your cars uh, repaired much quicker um, and much cheaper overall when when you consider the freight charges right that's our repair and then you you also dismantle rail cars. So is that a mobile mobile service uh, as well? That that is that, that's kind of a, a value added type service. Um, it's not okay. you know one of the the main service lines. Um, it's something that we can do in conjunction with our other services. So for instance, if there's a repair project um, and we find out that half the cars are unrepairable, we can scrap them on site for our customers rather than them ship them you know across the country for thousands of dollars a rail car. Right. So with that, now I, I'm guessing there's a lot of now if that's if, if you're mobile, uh, just going back to a little bit of the business model, if, if you're mobile, of course, now there's an expense of shipping out equipment and everything like that. So then you must be partnering. Do you partner with local contractors or do you have contractors you sort of work with continuously? How do you facilitate something like that, which actually requires heavy equipment? Yeah, well, um, for like the you're talking about uh, dismantling, you're talking about repairing. Yeah. It? Uh, yeah, either either one. Either or. Yeah, we, we have a trusted network of uh, vendors that we use to perform services. We try to do as much as we can internally, uh, but, you know, we have uh, a network that we rely on so that we can offer. It, it also helps us stay flexible um, and get cars and projects done faster. 
Right. The I'm going to circle back to the new thing that I'm hung up on is the the uh, X's on the uh, <laughs> X's on the cars. Gaddy's <laughs> <God is> like, <laughs> she's seen this before. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, but because it's gone private, uh, there's everybody shifting to private. I, I guess that actually becomes, I mean, maybe not a key part of your business, but a very common part now because you are going to need to change all these identification decals and everything over as the industry continues to shift around, right? Yeah, and I'm not sure where that's going to go, but um, that's how we started our company is uh, remarking of rail cars. Those are our early oh. projects. Um, so that was changing the numbers. When, when one owner bought a set of cars from another owner, they have to change the car numbers. So they would hire us. We'd go out there. We put stickers on the cars essentially and change out the AEI tags, the ident mm -hmm. identification tags. Um, so those were those were our early projects. Um, and like I said, I don't know if if we're always going to have um, you know those identifiers on the cars, but um, as of now, um, there that's that's how we're doing business, and they need to be changed occasionally. You, you mentioned yeah. like that's a change of like a sticker kind of thing, but. How how difficult is to change uh, the numbers on the car? Yeah, no, no, we just, no. It's yeah, just basically like a vinyl that you put on the car. I mean, a lot of people will spray paint new numbers okay. on, and that's we just don't think that looks that professional. So we get yeah. some vinyl um, and put it on the okay. car. It's really, okay. really sharp. The spray paint one that that would be my version of it. Just ah, it's fine. Yeah, hey, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Robert, I wanted to go at again. You're you're a you're a newer company. Um, I mean, new in an industry that's full of companies that have been around years and years. Um, but you've done you've done quite a wide range of projects and and really across Western Canada. So I wanted to highlight some of those. Um, of course, one of them is is the Ash is at Ashcroft Terminal. Um, of course, Ashcroft Terminal has been on our show has has been featured. So that's sort of interesting. Um, that you you actually have done work for them, um, so uh, can you can you talk a little bit about what a project like that is um, at a place like Ashcroft? Yeah, so I'll just give you a little bit of a background on how those projects work. So um, you know, occasionally mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, uh, a rail car owner might need some sort of work done to their car. Um, in the case of Ashcroft, it was cleaning of cars. So we've done actually two projects at Ashcroft. Uh, one was cleaning acid rail cars. And the other project was uh, rinsing out hopper cars for food grade service. Hmm. So, um, so that sort of project, you're just bringing you're bringing your crew out, and and what sort of the I, I think you shared some pictures of it. Do you, can you go a little bit into the actual steps of a project like that? Yeah. So um, essentially, you know, the, the customer requires the wash. Um, you know, we we work and find a facility that can do the. Uh, you know, we can put the cars out so we can get to them. Um, you know, in the case, uh, in this case, it was Ashcroft. Um, you know, we get approval for the work and then we mobilize our crews to do um, do the job. After we're done the job, we were able to produce uh, cleaning certificates and uh, give them to the car owners as, uh, to certify that those cars have been cleaned. So that's all facilities. So the, the private owner is, they, for whatever reason, they've got their, their rails at an Ashcroft terminal. So who's reaching out to you? Is that going through the private or is Ashcroft Terminal dealing directly it, with usually, you? Usually, yeah, usually the shipper um, reaches out to us and then sometimes the car owner gets involved. It depends who's paying the bill. Right, of course. Um, and then you've been out in Saskatchewan. You've done, uh, there is repair, wash, and scrap. Um, 
I've got that as my notes. Is that right? It seems like if you're yeah. repairing washing, then hopefully you're not scrapping. Because yeah, I'm so assuming there was a few moving parts to that. A few, a few, and I touched on that earlier. So that's actually one of my favorite projects. Uh, we had a customer, I was a leasing customer, and they wanted to move uh, 100 cars from grain service into potash service, right? Um, potash, you can't have a car show up and it be dusty. Um, mm. So we, we got the cars, we repaired the cars so that they were serviceable. We washed the inside of the cars and uh, any of the cars that were uh, too much to repair, uh, they asked us to scrap them. So we were able to recycle parts, um, you know, from the scrap cars onto mm. the uh, the cars that we were trying to keep in service. Um, so we actually delivered a lot of value, saved them a lot of money by uh, doing a repair and scrap operation together. So is that something they mandate or do you, when you go there, do you see that there's an opportunity to use the, the scrap parts and then and then lay that out for them? Or are most owners pretty pretty up to date on on that sort of thing? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, it's, it's inventory, right? So when you get a, a set of old cars, um, you don't know what kind of gates are on them. You don't know what kind of lids are on them. Um, so when you can steal parts from a portion of those cars to repair the other cars, you're going to get those cars into service a lot faster because... Uh, normally, you know, if you want to wait for inventory, uh, it's not, it's not, this isn't Amazon. Um, it's going to take, you know, several weeks, sometimes months to get um, yeah. these kind of parts, right? So it, it allows us to, to move quicker. And that's, and that's our goal because ultimately no one wants to see a parked car. They want it, you know, in revenue service. Right. And then uh, going into the, the transloading, and I was good at, and I'm looking at these projects, they're all, they're actually all fairly different. Um, and we're going to talk this about the transloading of the diesel exhaust fluid. Um, with these, now, is there a certification process that needs to be gone through as you're dealing with different products? Or, or how do you, as a company, um, make sure you're equipped to, to handle all these, these different products that are, that are being uh, transported? Yeah, no, uh, well, I mean, ultimately, like our biggest restriction comes down to uh, what the AAR says uh, we can and can't do. Uh, the AAR is the Association of American Railroads. Um, so there are a number of things that you need to be certified for doing, which we aren't always. Um, so, in, you know, in some cases, um, such as cleaning, like we can perform the cleaning work, uh, but we're not certified to uh, do anything like bubble leak tests or that sort of thing. So our, our services are limited, um, but, you know, it's, it's also hard for us to uh, get those certifications without a facility um, you know and without we're all basically project basis right uh, we're not we don't have regular work uh, we're, we're chasing right, yeah. projects for the most part so um, you know we we're limited to what we can do uh, we share with our customers what, what we're able to do and I think we still provide them with value so going into this transloading uh, the, the diesel exhaust fluid we again you've sent some pictures of that so we'll put that up on the screen did um, that that's where was that project located? I was just outside of Moose Jaw. Um, there's a uh, customer. They they were going into a shutdown situation, so their plant was going to be shut down. They were going to be producing uh, the diesel exhaust fluid for you know several months. Um, so what they did is beforehand they loaded up. Um, you know I think it was forty or fifty rail cars. They put them into storage with us, and then over the course of the shutdown, we slowly bled those cars out. So we were shipping you know two or three trucks a day. Um, so that just goes to show like, you know, some of the creativity that we can we can do when it comes to rail car storage projects. Um, yeah. And especially, I guess you must offer to customers, um, this is my attempt at a pitch for you, you you'll probably correct me, but you must you must off offer because you're mobile and you're working with the storage facilities, 
that must give an opportunity with the right type of client to just, uh, it must be a massive saving. I mean, yeah, like it, it is huge. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah the, you know, the, the, that's what they're all doing is they're analyzing costs, right? You know, that, so right. If, if we can show them something that saves them, you know, several hundred dollars per car, um, it's a tremendous value for them. And if we can do stuff locally too, closer to where the cars are going to go after they're completed and they can go back to that loading facility, then, then that's going to shorten, um, you know, the, the out of service time for the cars. Yeah. So there's, there's a number uh, of factors that, that need to be considered when, when people are making these projects. And we're just trying to give those creative solutions so that mm-hmm. you can, you can do those weird things, um, that, you know, a rail car repair shop won't do or a short line won't do. Um, we'll manage it for you. And it's just, you know, it's like a push of a button. Yeah. Well, you started a company like this. Um, you know, I've I've been involved with a few uh, new companies. I've been involved with companies that have been around a long time. Um, but especially with new, um, there's always surprise in any industry. But with new, sometimes what you thought and and what ends up being are just a are, are two very different things. Um, when you start off a company like this, how much different is it from what you thought you were entering into from, from what this company has turned into and, and even the way you service or get new business? Is it, it how, how much is different? And, you know, for the most part, um, you know, I, I, this is kind of how we saw it, it going down. You know, we, we, we knew there was going to be slow growth. We knew that we'd have to pick up customers slowly. Um, you know, some of the mm-hmm. biggest challenges that, that I personally uh, with growing a business that I think is um, is the delay in payment by customers. Um, you know, these big customers sometimes don't like to pay in 30 days. They like to pay in 60 and 90 days. And, you know, yeah. if, if you as a small business aren't going to have a cash position that can support that, um, you know, the, the choppy cash flow, then I mean, you mm-hmm. can be out of business just because the customer doesn't pay you on time. Right. So, I mean, yeah. there's a there's a lot to learn um, about, you know, running a business and staying around. Um, you know, luckily, I, I have a business partner that I lean on that that takes care of most of that stuff for us. So. Um, that, 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 that to me has been the biggest, um, eye opener is just kind of, you know, a lot of big companies will pay on 30 days and that's the industry standard, but some other ones, it's 90 or 120 days. And, and you know, as a yeah, small business, yeah, you got it's not uncommon for 120 days nowadays. It's, it's really not. And, and you know, and yeah. with today's technology and everything's instant, it's crazy. The last thing they're going to make instant is payment for, for service. Right. <laughs> yeah. But if I want to buy something, <laughs> I, I got to pay up front. So. Yeah. Right. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, though. I mean, that's uh, for small companies in the industrial space, um, anything commercial, you, when the, the big companies, that is a major, major hurdle. Um, you know, you've, you do the work. I mean, I did, um, this is years ago now, but I did, um, we had an exterior company. And, you know, you've, you've just, you've done a 30 day project and now you're moving into a 60 day project. You still haven't got paid from the last one. You got to go buy supplies for the next one and you got to work on 60 days. Well, the last one isn't going to pay for 30 days from completion or, or mid invoice, let's say. And the other one isn't going to start paying. So you might be waiting, you might be waiting two or three months while you're actually putting out capital. In this case, we were putting out capital for supplies. And we didn't have the best financing options because we're a little company buying from big suppliers. So it's it's a major yeah, challenge. You're at for their small mercy, companies. and and it's a timing thing, right? Um, it, it all comes down to uh, one customer can can probably put you out of business at the early stage, right? So if you can get past that and you can build a bank balance uh, and have a good cash position to to handle those yes. late payments, um, you know, 
you'll be fine. But it's uh, it's that early. Like our our first one of our first customers, um, they they were way late on payment, and they were telling they obviously had some financial issues. I think you know their business model wasn't ideal at the time. They've corrected it since, uh, but they were basically telling us we got to pay our employees first, and then we'll pay your bill. You know, um, so you know, when you hear that, it's like how long am I not going to get paid for? That, that yeah. that's kind of the risks of of starting a business, right? And I I, I personally have you know a family of you know, three, three daughters and a wife. And, um, you know, you don't like to hear that, but, um, at the same time you want to take the risk and you want to start the business because, you know, you have, you know, aspirations and stuff like that, but yeah, it's not all up to you. That's for sure. No, no. I mean, you got to be a little bit, um, you know, uh, if, you know, sometimes some people say it's luck or blessed or whatever it is, but you, you have to have a few things, uh, go right that are beyond your control. That's for sure. When you're starting out, I mean, even big businesses do. But when you're small, yeah, you you just you're you need a few people to to go right when you hope they go right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's some bad days and there's some some really good days, right? So it it balances out. From from your what experience, did, oh, what would be something that you you could pass on, like an advice for for companies who are starting out? Uh, try not to waste money. And, uh, you know, personally save up some money before you, before you make the jump, if you're quitting your job or, you know, you're starting a business, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of advice is to start something part-time. Uh, I don't necessarily believe in that. I think you might as well go in or, or don't do it at all. Um, so, right. you know, if you're, if you're going to start a business, um, you know, make sure that you can, you can stand on your own legs for, you know, the 18 months or 12 months or wh- whatever it takes, um, to kind of get it going. And then, it's not, it's probably still going to be uh, a little bit of a rough ride after that. But um, that, that's, yeah. that's my advice is, is you know, you, you got to know what you're getting into and um, have, have some money and don't waste money. I, I did. Yeah. yeah. I, and I'm, I'm talking from experience. Right. No, I think that, but that's key. And, and I mean, like you said, from experience, you're not going to know until you do it. Yeah. Some things that you think are important um, and you want to spend money on turn out not to be important. And, and, you know, it was probably just better to have cash. Cash is always right, right. is good. And, you know, a lot of the companies now that have good cash position probably aren't. They're in a better shape. Um, you know, like the, the pandemic, for instance, we, you know, we couldn't see that coming. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it would have been good to have cash. Coming. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I was talking this is, uh, about a year ago um, to someone and he was starting out something and he had some he had some cash saved up and I said to him, cause I, you know, we were just sort of coming out of our, us being a brand new business. Um, you know, we were kind of going to our third year and I said to him, I said, one th- piece of advice I'll give you is spend as little of that cash in the first year, because so, like, like you touched on so many of the things you think are important in that first year end up not being key to the business and you end up burning that cash. You're almost better to do it on as little cash as possible right from the beginning. And and I agree with the full time in most cases. I think, you know, fully invest yourself into it, your time into it, but try to put as little money in because once you start to figure out the business, then in the, you know, after 18 months, 24 months, 36, you start to know where that money needs to be spent. And so many people, again, speaking from experience, <laughs> spend so they front load so much of their spend at the very beginning and then they realize oh i should have spent it on that instead i think it's it's probably i think it's one of the most under 
underrated mistakes that, that new businesses make. Yeah, you, you don't need that ten or fifteen thousand dollar website to start. You just go, no. go and get it, go and get the Squarespace, you know, three hundred dollar a year type website to start, right? When when you're when you're better off, you know, by all means go and spend fifty grand on it if you feel like. Um, but don't don't do that from day one. You need yeah. you, you need to protect yourself. You need to be thinking the long game. Yeah. Um, what, and I'm interested though, what, for your background, I mean, you've, you've been in the industry a while and what, what, what was your background before coming into this and, and what, what are the lessons that you brought with you, um, into, to, into starting a new business and, and having a partner, which is, which is obviously an advantage, but it's also, also can be a challenge. Partnerships are, are are important things to take care of. So what sort of your past experiences kind of brings all that together for you over the last four years? Yeah, so I was fortunate my last, uh, with my last employer, I for five years I was uh, cleaning up train derailments like I'd mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, towards the end of it, I, I was basically the operations manager for all of Saskatchewan. And uh, let me tell you about a train derailment is it's probably one of the most chaotic events you'll ever see uh, and then you have you know everyone is screaming for action um, get this done get that done get these cars out of the way open up the line um, so i learned how to stay calm in chaos mm. uh, because of it um, and then and then the reason i didn't like it was because it's very dangerous um, so you know th there's a you know, one of my favorite stories um, was i was asked to hook up and when i say ask the client asked me to hook up um, a dozer to a burning rail car. And the only only way to do that was to climb up on top of that rail car. So this rail car is on fire, my boots are melting, and I'm trying to hook up a cable so that a dozer can, can drag it clear. So, I mean, that that at that point is kind of when I realized that this is not, I, I couldn't ask anyone else to do it, so I did it myself. Um, but at that point, I, I didn't want to get caught in a situation like that. It's very dangerous. Um, you know, there's more to life. And yeah. you know, that was kind of one of those, those, I started, I think I started my holding company in just a few months after that. I, I knew that it was time to, uh, to make a change. Yeah. So I, I learned, yeah, a, a, cre a credible amount uh, just from, you know, I, I probably got a career's worth of derailments in, in five years. I mean, I did hundreds of them. Um, oh, so I'm, really? Yeah, yeah, hundreds of them. Yeah, and all sorts of dangerous commodities, you know, easy ones, hard ones, ones that took a month, ones that took five minutes. Um, we, we did them all. Um, I learned the rail industry really well, um, and I've, I've been able to go, you know, to the next step with that. Um, and then, you know, your, to your question with, with my partner, what I learned, I don't know everything. Uh, and my, my business partner has a really unique um, experience or a perspective, sorry, on the industry. Um, so, you know, just my perspective based off of what I know and, you know, the lay of the land and, you know, derailments and, and his experience with, um, you know, uh, rail car repair, maintenance and that sort of thing is just, a, it was a perfect blend. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a perfect blend, I think, for the market too. Oh, sorry, Gaddy, I thought you were going to ask oh, sorry. something. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry, I had a little bit of a sneeze. <laughs> well, I, I'm making an adjustment today because I... The other, the last couple episodes, I looked down at the the screen for who I'm talking to, but then it looks like I'm looking down. So I've been trying to look at the camera. So I have to listen really close to see if I can pick up when people are finishing. So uh, we're we're adjusting on the fly here too. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> different um, to not have uh, you know a body language to kind of play off of. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a big adjustment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, developing I'm not a new respect it. for people who do it radio shows. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Did. Um, 
You know what? Have you, uh, you know, as we sort of get to the uh, get to the, the tail end of the show, um, have you during this COVID nineteen have you made any adaptions um, to your company that you think will stick? It's sort of a question we're asking asking everybody. Um, uh, I'm also just feeding for ideas too for my own company, but um, <laughs> I'm just wondering: Has the uh, have you done? Have there been things you've added in that you go? No, this is this is actually a good way of operating. Or were you yeah. pretty mobile before? As a before as this? a salesperson, I mean, you know, I, I would do sales trips to Calgary. I would go there for a week and I'd maybe meet fifteen people, and that was exhausting. Um, yeah, I I can probably do that in two days online. So there's that. Um, and I think there's a new way of doing business um, that we have to embrace. Um, I I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. I think you know, video conferencing. That's that's how we're going to do it. So I mean, me personally, I, I'd like to, you know, invest in a little bit more equipment um, so that the production's a little bit better, you know, in the future, uh, because this is how we're going to do business. This is how we're going to communi- communicate with each other, um, you know, and, and it's completely global. I can talk to someone in, you know, Poland or the Philippines uh, and Calgary, you know, within the same hour. Um, you, you, you couldn't do that before, right? And, and now people are at home. So now I can get a hold of people. I can call people. Before, you were in a meeting all day. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. This this is going to unleash a lot of um, a lot for people. I think Uh, you can be really productive in this environment, um, especially if you've already been, you know, going digital. Yeah. If you're sort of already ahead of the curve, well, we were. I mean, very fortunate in that that our business is sort of in that realm anyway. So we just Mm -hmm. we literally just had to order in some adapters and you know, some different connectors and some software and we were good to go. Um, but for some, for companies I've met over the years that are, I mean, they're, they're maybe 10 years behind, they're going to have a big shift, but I think it'll actually be helpful for them purely from a business side, not from the economic side. Um, but, um, I think it's going to be helpful because it is forcing me now people to sort of get into that. The other thing I've seen, and this is, this is sort of a psychological thing. But I've noticed now, um, we always have a thing where people, um, for lack of a better word, they kind of hum and haw if they want to come on the show. Is it the right fit? You know, now people, if if they're sort of, um, if this this COVID thing, even psychologically, is really really putting them down, they're very quick to just say no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. But people are also much quicker to say yes if they're into it. If they sort of got that fighter mentality where they go, no, no, we're we're going to find something new. They just, yeah, we're on. When are you booking us in? We've been able to book people so much faster than we've ever been able to because in its in a way we've kind of weeded out people that are just not. They just don't want to engage. They just kind of want to wait it out. And it, it's mm-hmm. you're seeing but a very stark difference. But they don't want to. They don't want to go through with it, eh? Yeah, well, and I understand it. I mean, the first, I mean, our office is closed. We don't have, I mean, we don't have anybody here. Um, and so it's, nobody's coming in. And, and so it, it can be a little disheartening, especially on the retail side. We have retail companies around us. Oh, I can't even imagine what it's like for them right now. So, but in the industrial space, we're certainly finding people like yourself who go, no, I'll, I'll come on. I'll still keep talking. Like, let's let's keep going. And I think it's going to make a huge difference when we come out of this, because we will, like you said, the companies that adopt new technology, new ways of doing things, and and are, are preparing themselves for when things pick up, and they will pick up. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, let's let's try to adapt as quick as possible into this environment. You know, if this can end in two months, you know, great. If we can go back to how it was, great. Uh, but if this drags on for, you know, 18 months or two years, I, I like to, you know, the biggest head start I can into, into yeah. the new way of doing business. Yeah. No, it's good. I, I will say, though, it's it's tough for, for people <laughs> They're working from home. They've got families and kids and kids are out of school. And that's uh, that's a whole other challenge. I, I, I don't have that problem. <laughs> so it's easy for me to say. <laughs> no, yeah, it's I, definitely I hard. Yeah, you've got a bit of a crew there. Hey, Gaddy. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that you go from you thought you you had one career and now you know that no, you're you're kind of being launched into a whole new one. Now you have to teach, and it's it's a bit of a process. Yeah, you you said Robert, you have you have four, right? I got three, uh, three, three, three daughters and a wife. So yeah, four four you others whole, you to distract me throughout the day. Luckily, I mean they've they've done great with just giving me space um, to work. Yeah. I mean I, I come down. I have a basement office, so I just. I come down. I put four hours in. I take lunch. I took another four hours, and and honestly, I I'm so productive. I'm I'm getting so organized. Um, it's crazy. It's I I never had this much time, right? So as long yeah, as you, it's, you yeah. crack that laptop open and just just let it suck you in. Like you yeah. Know, yeah, there's lots to do. Yeah. Yeah, what what I've what I've done every now and then I feel a little bit like, oh, this is kind of like, is this being productive? So what I do is I just grab a really easy task to do to get me get back going again. But I've, you know, you're not the first person to mention it to me. Like, there's a little bit of that adjustment from fully working from home. But I'm hearing a lot of people now are saying all of a sudden they realize, whoa, I can get a lot done in an eight-hour day if I'm not moving around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and well, it's like the meetings too, right? Or you eliminate the walking to meetings, the time in between meetings. Um, that's that's going to save companies so much labor. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I also find that um, at least working from home, I have a little bit more peace of mind. I'm not so worried about you know the the tasks that need to be done at home because I'm here. Um, and so I know that I have the time that I don't have to, again, spend the time of driving one place, driving to the next, what, get that. So it's just, it's so much easier. Although I will say, Gaudi, now that I have to go through all the steps in the morning, I realize how much stuff you do to put this show together because <laughs> I have to do it. But Robert, um, you know, I, I do thank you for coming on the show. Um, we like genuinely appreciate it because uh, it, it really... Uh, we're watching all of our engagement. I've said this on the other shows, um, episodes. Um, our engagement is going up online because I, I do think people want more than just news. They want to feel connected to their he heavy industries, um, whether it be transportation or mining or energy. And so so we appreciate you coming on and, and just keeping everybody informed and, and engaging with, with an audience. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot of exciting things going on out there, and you guys have done a great job of showcasing that. So I'll... I'll you know, I'll be sure to continue watching what you guys are doing as well. Yeah, and hopefully get you on back, back, back on here at some point. So, thanks, Robert. Um, yeah, uh, I, I certainly wish you the best with everything. Um, I think you've got an. In, you, it's it's clear you're filling a need, and and it's an interesting business model. So it's something that I want to keep my eye on, and I, I think a lot of the audience will be interested in it as well. Awesome. Okay. Appreciate thanks your time, a lot. Guys. Thank yeah, you so much. Welcome. You guys have a good one. You too. you too. Take care. 
Okay, uh, I'm going to put it back to Gowdy now to wrap up the show. Tell us how you can support us. And uh, again, thanks for thanks to Robert for coming on the show. Um, it's it's great to have people talking, and there's a lot of energy actually of people wanting to try o- online doing it remote. So we're glad to have our small opportunity to contribute to that. Thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for watching. Please subscribe and follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also listen wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And also please head on over to crownsman.com forward slash donations. Um, If you are a dedicated fan and watch every episode, or if you have a favorite industry that you love to follow and would like to help support, um, then please donate. Again, that's crownsman.com forward slash donations. There are uh, various options. Um, We've got the five buck monthly subscription and the support heavy industry one-time donation. And this is all through PayPal. So it's super, super safe. Um, But again, that's crownsman.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much for your support. Um, If you donate or you subscribe, I will also do a little shout out on the upcoming episodes. Thank you for watching. 